The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Monday, October 28th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A new poll out today shows that the younger generation is quite open to socialist candidates and socialism in general, which I credit to an excellent rebranding effort by AOC and Rashida Tlaib. A little bit of Bernie also. The squad members, so AOC, Rashida Tlaib, avowed socialists, endorsed socialists, whereas Ayanna Presley specifically denies being a socialist. And uh, Ilan Omar, she does a little socialist toe touch. She was asked on Democracy Now!, are you a socialist? And she answered, I consider myself a Democrat. So I lay this all out there to introduce and soon analyze the question or the conclusion that 70% of millennials say they are likely to vote socialist. Well, unless they live in New York's 14th congressional district or Michigan's 13th, I don't know where they're going to get a chance to do so. Maybe the poll conducted by YouGov is finding a much, 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 much higher level of support for Bernie among millennials than any other poll is finding. Or maybe these polled millennials are just betting on the come, as they say in decidedly non-millennial craps jargon. They're predicting they'll get many more chances to vote socialist as time goes on. It's a pretty optimistic prediction, given the current state of politics. Like I said, two members of the squad, half the squad, are still hesitant to call themselves socialist. And aside from Ocasio-Cortez, Sanders, and Tlaib, none of the other 535 members of Congress call themselves socialist. So where are all these opportunities to vote socialist coming from? Sure, some on the state or city level. I have seen a few of the offerings. Chicago has a deep dish of DSA candidates, but places like, oh, almost everywhere else, much less so. Then I saw another finding of this poll, which was reported by Axios, and I listened to a couple of podcasts that mentioned this poll. This was also in the same poll. Only 57% of millennials believe the Declaration of Independence better, quote, guarantees freedom and equality over the Communist Manifesto. What the hell does this mean? The Declaration of Independence offers no guarantee of anything. It is no force of law. It was a letter to the king. The Communist Manifesto was an argument put forth by a couple of Germans who moved to England. What a weird choice. And better guarantees freedom and equality. I mean, for freedom, I'd go with the Declaration. For equality, I'd go with the Communist Manifesto. Isn't that the point of communism? Everyone's equal, no matter how good, bad, or what choices you make. It's just a weird choice. And does it tell us a thing about millennials? So I looked a little further. Remember I said it was a poll by YouGov? It is, but it was technically by YouGov slash the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. Oh, so I guess we've just figured out what kind of answers they're looking for. But it's kind of interesting when you think about it. It's apparently in the interest of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation to promote the idea that socialism is on the march. The Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation are anti-communist activists. They actually are bipartisan if you look at the board. But there are also rigid ideologues who are fighting the last war. Although, if Donald Trump and Tulsi Gabbard get their way, maybe they'll be fighting the next one too. Axios tagged their findings, as Axios does, why it matters. Here was why it matters. 
Nearly half of Gen Z and millennial respondents said they felt the U.S. economy worked against them more than other generations. Okay, fair enough. But we also know the kind of answers that an advocacy group wanted to elicit. This way, they can publicize the following finding. That 72% of Americans incorrectly say that communism has killed less than 100 million people in the past 100 years. And they can say, see, see what little the kids know. But that's also a kind of crazy thing to conclude. Yeah, Mao and Stalin killed almost 100 million people between them. Was it really communism doing the killing or was it, you know, genocide, repression, autocracy? Look, communist governments do not have a great record of human flourishing. But did communism kill them? I don't know, I might quibble. Here's another finding. 15% of millennials think the world would be better off if the Soviet Union still existed. Maybe they were just trolling. Maybe it was nostalgia. Maybe they're big, huge Rocky IV fans. Hard to say. In general, I find it interesting that the victims of communism are really eager to advance the story that the kids today totally don't get it, that they hold dangerous opinions. And yeah, I think a lot of the ignorance of the millennials, if they want the old USSR back, it is ignorance, but it's also the ignorance of not knowing history, right? I'm sure a lot of the silent generation who get all the questions, quote-unquote, right about communism, would be pretty bad about the Spanish-American War. But I also get the sense that the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, and I just love saying that, it rolls off the tongue, they're pretty cavalierly implying that we're all about to be victimized by our own young people. They're a fifth column, the kind of column that's a disorganized jumble, but still a column. There is a silver lining in all of this, even the YouGov, Victims of Communist Memorial Foundation found that the kids these days do have some common ground with their parents and grandpas. Here it is. About one in four Americans across every generation see President Trump as the biggest threat to world peace over Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin. To that I say USA, USA. On the show today, I spiel about Katie Hill's announced resignation and the arguments not so much against it, but the arguments that are framing the story as if Katie Hill is the primary victim. But first, Samantha Power served as special assistant to the president and senior director for multilateral affairs and human rights on the Security Council from 09 to February 2013. Then she was named United States ambassador to the United Nations. She's a best-selling author a winner of the Pulitzer Prize. She teaches at Harvard. And yet she said that this conversation that you're about to hear is the highlight of her career thus far. Okay, she didn't say it. But if you know how to read intonation and body language, I think it was strongly implied. Samantha Power, up next. Samantha Power served in the cabinet of President Barack Obama. She was the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. Before that, she was a special assistant to the president for multilateral affairs and human rights. Samantha Power's book, A Problem from Hell, America in the Age of Genocide, won the Pulitzer Prize and got her that job. Uh, Essentially, she had to serve some time in the Senate office, which was not fun for her. Her new book is The Education of an Idealist, a memoir. Samantha Power is here. Thanks for joining me. So happy to be here. So you and I have two similarities that I could tell. I am not a redhead, but (laughs) I did work for NPR. So we've both reported for NPR and we both wrote 
for our college sports, for our college newspapers covering women's volleyball. And the greatest headline, I went to Emory in Atlanta, arrival of Emory was Tacoa Falls, and the headline was women's volleyball team barrels over Tacoa Falls. So we have that in common. Bad sports writing. Yeah, bad, well, great headlines on bad articles. But the sports writing got you the job uh, in Bosnia, writing and covering that war? Kind of. I mean, I when I was in my early 20s and I saw the horribleness unfolding in the Balkans and I was working as an intern at a place that was in the same building as the American magazine U.S. News and World Report, I marched in in, like, in the movies. It happens this way. You march <laughs> into the chief of correspondence office and you say, I think I can do this. I'm going to go over to the region. Will you take my calls? And he says, show me your clips. Yeah. <laughs> and I produce my basketball, my volleyball clips. And he looks at me like I have lost my, <laughs> you know what, mind. Uh, so I was very lucky that he agreed to take my call. And, and uh, But, it, you know, there is something. I mean, when you are a sports reporter, even if you are one of poor quality as I was, you do learn to write a lead. You do learn a little bit about a nut graph. Yeah. You learn... To kind of get to the point. You, accuracy you, is important. Accuracy yeah. is important, we hope. It's still important in all, all media, we, we hope. Learning to write on a deadline, learning to be edited and not be too wedded to right. how your perfect words that you, that you get attached to. You also know, there, making experience. the reader care in a way that if you're in the middle of it, you might see the drama of a volleyball game or the <laughs> horrors of a war, but that doesn't necessarily mean that your reader will understand, and that was a lesson you had to learn. Yeah, the bridging role mm-hmm. is huge. And and in Bosnia, it was a bit harder because, of course, you're further away and you get really ensconced in a bubble, and you think that what you're seeing, it's so self-evidently terrible and worthy of caring about because these are your neighbors and the people you've come to know who are being so terribly affected. And if you don't come back and forth or go back and forth, and back then I wouldn't have been able to afford to come back uh, very much because I was just a freelance journalist covering the war, how to, how to know, you know, how to prevent someone's eyes from glazing over as you're describing something that to you feels so immediate and so worthy of compassion. How many lives would you say the NATO bombing in uh, Bosnia and the former Balkan or the Balkan Republic saved? I mean, you don't. I don't know how long the war would have gone on. I mean, 100,000 people were killed or more at the time in August, September 1995. That action occurred. So I, I don't know. I mean, the Srebrenica massacre had just occurred, which was in the span of a week, the systematic murder of 8,000 Muslim men and boys. Mm-hmm. Every one of the other safe areas were vulnerable to similar assaults. There just weren't yeah. the means on the ground for Bosnians to defend themselves. So conceivably, you could have seen that kind of crime carried out across the country that would have been 50,000 to 100,000 lives. Yeah, I mean, this is what I've heard. It's not out of the realm of possibility to say it saved hundreds of thousands of lives. So here is how I think about that. It wasn't NATO did intervene and Bill Clinton did rally uh, the American political system to make that happen. It wasn't a fait accompli that this was going to happen. We could easily imagine a world where there was no NATO intervention and those however many thousand, hundred thousand people died. In economics, there is uh, there is the concept of essentially a penny saved is a penny earned. It's the same in ethics that to choose not to save a life is pretty much the same as killing someone. So this is why I look at the people who are, I don't know, they call themselves anti-imperialists or they're against every single uh, American intervention, someone like Tulsi Gabbard, I guess, or Michael Moore, and I just can't take them seriously. I just think of them essentially like 
climate change deniers or someone who so ignores a fact and has essentially embraced a policy of deep, deep immorality. Am I being too harsh on them? Well, I guess what I would say is that you you have to be a consequentialist. I, I don't think there's room. I mean, if, if implied in what you're saying is I'm a Kantian, I believe there's a categorical imperative to save lives no matter what. You just have to filter that worthy impulse, which I share on one level, but through the, the a, pol- a set of policy questions about right. what tool will work, can you do it at reasonable cost to your own, to the lives of the, the military families, the people, you know. In other words, that's exactly members. who you are, were. That's, that's well, I, the, I mean, I mean yeah. yeah, I suppose I'm endorsing <laughs> my way of looking at things. Of yes. course, shocking. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like where the impulse, the, the, the impulse you've articulated is one that I wish would seize people to then say, okay, let's open the toolbox now. Okay. And this is what happened in the Obama administration when when Syria confronted us. There was no shortage of elevating the issue or engaging the president. There was no indifference to human consequences where the discussions broke down was over people in the room saying, understandably, who are these opposition factions on the ground? There are now hundreds of them. At one point, that more than a thousand I don't feel I, President Obama, don't feel comfortable that if we take this military action that I know who my partners are. And so that's got to be part of the calculus, too. And so it's, you know, in, in philosophy, since we've been talking about it, there's a, an expression that I've been coming back to lately a fair amount, which is can implies ought. And so, you know, that doesn't get at costs and what costs are worth bearing and how to value an American life versus other lives. There's a whole set of factors that one has to take into account. But but I think the the real break on more aggressive action in the face of Syrian atrocities was not a lack of empathy uh, for the Syrian people or even a lack of strategic foresight. I think there was a recognition that the longer that war went on, the more terrorists would be created, the more refugees would be created, that that could have knock-on effects that we'd be dealing with for years. But it was, what can we do mm-hmm. At, at a reasonable cost. So to give listeners uh, a little orientation, you're what, three weeks on the job when Assad uh, uses chemical weapons against his uh, people in the suburbs of Damascus. Now at that point, Obama wants to intervene. And then over the course of about 10 days, right, Ban Ki-moon and the UN goes into Damascus to do their investigation, which everyone knew would conclude it was sarin gas. But over those 10 days, Obama's passion's cool. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, well, my question is, uh, yeah. he can't be right in both cases. He either was impetuous on day one when he said we're going in or overly cautious on day 10, unless the facts on the ground changed in a way I don't think they did. Yeah, I don't think I agree with what you just said, that you can't be right in in both cases. I think, you could, I, think I could understand why he would choose both well, ways. but I, Well, I think the as you do this, and it sounds so clinical, I hate even using this language, but as you do your cost benefit, mm-hmm, right? Sure. To, you know, invoke my husband's framework for everything. He was literally the administration's cost, cost, cost benefit, benefit czar. analyst. Yeah. Um, so, but if you're the president, so on, on day one, or let's say like within the first few days, you have the targets identified. It's going to be a limited military action. You're not interested in making war in Syria. You're interested... You know, and you can criticize him for this, but you're trying to ensure that Assad does not use chemical weapons again. And you proceed. And and part of proceeding means you tell your new UN ambassador, uh, Samantha Power, to go <laughs> and get the inspectors out uh, because they are going to just tell you something you already know. 
and you move. Then the circumstances start to change a little bit. Your targets get leaked by someone in the Pentagon who didn't want anything to do with military action. So suddenly your targets are in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. David Cameron decides he's going to go to his parliament and ask his parliament whether he has permission to join the United States and France in carrying out this limited uh, military operation. Russia previewing some of what we would later see in Ukraine and even in our own election goes all in on disinformation. And so my point is, as he's making the judgment at the end of the week, the circumstances really have changed. Okay. However, <laughs> the reason I come down, I suppose it sounds like where you do, is there is the additional factor, which is you've told the world you're going to use military force. And so I think in that moment, as you're doing, as you're making your judgment about whether to go forward or not, I think President Obama at that point concluded, I have to go forward. I've said I'm going to go forward. And then he made a, a miscalculation. I'm going to do so with Congress beside me. I can't have like the perfect storm of no congressional authorization, no UN Security Council authorization. But I will say um, that it was a mistake. I mean, it's, it should, I suppose go without saying it was a mistake to go to Congress without being able convincingly uh, to have polled members, especially in your own party, to know whether they would stand mm -hmm. with you. So I want to go back in time and also in perspective, because we're talking about Syria. This was an outgrowth of the broader phenomenon of the Arab Spring. And it strikes me that the Arab Spring affects different countries in different ways. Of course it does. But the United States has many different kinds of reactions in different countries. And yet it seems like all of them, to some extent or another, screwed up. So in Libya, we intervene. That's a bloodbath. In Egypt, we try diplomacy and maneuvering within the corridors of power. I don't know that that has worked out for the Egyptian people. Syria, we just talked about. Tunisia, we're totally hands-off, and mostly that seems to have been the one success story, although more Tunisians is a percentage of ISIS than any other country. Um, am I being glib, or am I defaulting to, well, things are complex? I mean, is that a fair analysis, that all these different circumstances, all these different tools in the toolbox, and none of them seem to have, quote-unquote, worked? Well, I think it's a fair description of how people came to feel, you know, as the Arab Spring wore on of just, geez, damned if you do, damned if you don't, you know, we don't do anything in Syria. There's a tool. Yeah. There's a yeah. tool Do you know, stay on the sidelines and look what happens. And then Libya, we, the entire world is, is either explicitly or implicitly behind what NATO does. So it's got an, a level of international legitimacy that almost nothing since 9-11 had had in the international system. What I'd say is that the, the destinies of these countries um, are fundamentally are going to lie in, in the hands of the people in these countries. And in each of these instances, and I tell this story in the book, you had a case of corrupt and on different scales, massively repressive regimes that resisted even the mildest political and economic reforms over decades. So in resisting evolution... You see revolution, and when you see revolution, that's almost never in history going to end well. It's, it would have been very hard to tell people who'd had enough. I mean, that you know, that would exaggerate America's, I think, ability also to have put the genie back in the bottle. I mean, you, you know, you, so you're you're at that. I mean, that's how I think how Egypt, how President Obama experienced Egypt is like. Okay, we did not incite these protests. This is Egyptian 
exasperation bubbling up and they're just done and they've lost their fear. And so the tools of repression that had normally had that chilling effect and convinced people to stay home were no longer having that effect. I mean, the whole kind of ecology of the country had changed. And so then you, you're, as a policymaker, you're at the crossroads and you're saying, okay, are we going to be for a government that's trying to decide, are we going to be for a government's ruthless suppression of these protests? Are we in that mode? Or are we speaking generally on behalf of the aspirations of nonviolence, of um, economic reform, of democratic transition? And so there wasn't like a neutral position that you could have in relation to those protests. Same with Tunisia. I think what your question and, and I think that sense that people have of kind of powerlessness is maybe a healthy antidote to the exaggeration of the extent to which any outside actor can change the underlying dynamics in, and it's not just in the Middle East, but in Afghanistan, in sub-Saharan Africa, anywhere, in Vietnam back in the day, we can't. Um, but it doesn't mean that a po posture of neutrality is possible, but that fundamentally the lesson is evolutionary change uh, nudged along, uh, you know, you, you know, with the technical support from the United States or with support for the rule of law or judicial institutions. I mean, that's the kind of work that's a slow burn and a long game. But once you're in a situation like this, it is neither within the writ or the power of the United States to to dictate events, to, to end the protests, which yes. some now with nostalgia kind of, you know, sort of almost blaming the United States for not having just snuffed out the Arab Spring. I mean, that would have been even more bloodshed uh, probably, nor was it is it within our writ or our power you know, to um, from the outside, or even had we had we gone in as as happened, you know, in the Iraq context, uh, to to alter dynamics that are that are so beyond our cultural, historical, uh, logistic grasp, and and I think that um, for some is a is a rude awakening. For me, it's sort of like, look, you're you're the United States. You're still the most powerful country in the world. You have levers. But you are not um, omnipotent, and especially, again, given the limits of what we know about the kinds of countries we've been talking about. The Education of an Idealist, a memoir by Samantha Power. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. And now the spiel. Representative Katie Hill has stepped down to recap Hill was accused of having a relationship with a campaign staffer and a congressional staffer. She denied that she ever had a relationship with the congressional staffer, but admitted, after first denying it, that she did have a relationship with a campaign staffer. In that statement, she said, quote, During the final tumultuous years of my abusive marriage, I became involved in a relationship with someone on my campaign, I know that even a consensual relationship with a subordinate is inappropriate, but I still allowed it to happen despite my better judgment. She vowed to stay in there, to fight it, to pursue charges within the Capitol and perhaps California law related to revenge porn. But over the weekend, fighting on those grounds appeared to become untenable and she announced her resignation. Now, the left is largely upset. Katie Hill, they argue, is the victim. Jamel Bowie of the New York Times tweeted, 
big story of Hill's resignation is the fact that she's a victim of revenge porn from her ex-husband, published and publicized by a conservative media outlet. On CNN, feminist writer Jill Filipovich made this argument. Having an affair with a subordinate is wrong. I think we can say that. I think we can also say that revenge porn is many, many magnitudes worse than a consensual affair. So there are a few main strains of the argument favoring Katie Hill, making the case that she was unfairly chased from office, and I want to go over them one by one. They are A, a double standard between Republicans and Democrats. B, that she's the victim of a double standard between men and women. C, she's a victim of revenge porn. And maybe we'll get a little into D by phobia. As far as Republicans being held to a different standards than Democrats, of course they are. But Democrats have the higher standard. In fact, the standards among Republicans in policing workplace harassment with less vigor, and in the case of the president, by countenancing it and denying it every day, that's what I would call an insufficient standard. So, is there a double standard? Indeed there is. And the Democrats should be happy there is. They shouldn't want the Republican standard. It is a less moral standard. I also think it's a politically more disadvantageous standard. Onto revenge porn. She was. She was the victim of revenge porn. The perpetuator of the revenge porn is her husband. If the facts as we understand them now turn out to be the case that her husband gave them to this right-wing website, Red State, and they publicized them. Daily Mail did so too. If that's where it came from, it seems like he perpetuated some revenge porn upon her. But let's talk about the conservative outlet that publicized the revenge porn. They did it to provide photographic documentary evidence to move a story, a story that was legit enough that it did result in the resignation of a member of Congress. It did result in that member of Congress admitting that she engaged in an inappropriate act. There was a journalistic purpose there. I don't know if it was the highest minded of journalistic purposes, but my gosh, if I look at the First Amendment, you know, that's a form of journalism. And if there weren't a photo, I think we do not take the allegations seriously. The proof that I have of that is that Red State ran a report without photos a week prior, and that report got zero pickup. I also think there's an analogy between intimate photo leakers and classified military plan leakers. The news organization in each case would be the recipient of the leak, and therefore the leaker can be considered to have engaged in an unethical or illegal act. Same with revenge porn as with military plans. And to be clear, I think Red State is odious. And if Red State weren't odious, and if Red State had a decent enough reputation that their reporting of something could get some attention, maybe they wouldn't have had to publish the revenge porn. Maybe they were gleeful to have done so. But my point is, without the revenge porn for that particular news organization, the story has much less weight. And the revenge porn, the pictures, our pictures are ways for a news consumer to make a judgment about the believability of the story. Therefore, they serve a journalistic purpose. And I would say they do give the allegations some weight. Now, in 2017, Joe Barton, a Republican from Texas, also got hit with some revenge porn. I'll read his statement that he made at the time. And by the way, its accuracy has never been disproved. Quote, While separated from my second wife prior to the divorce, I had sexual relationships with other mature adult women. Each was consensual. 
Those relationships have ended. I'm sorry I did not use better judgment during those days. I'm sorry I let my constituents down. There wasn't a huge clamoring among the precincts doing the clamoring today that Joe Barton was a victim. Slate did write an article saying Joe Barton was a victim of revenge porn. But in general, he was held out as a gross guy who was grossly abusing his office, even though he wasn't engaging with members of his campaign or congressional staff. As typical of the reaction, here is CNN commentator Amanda Carpenter at the time. But man, it's just, I hate to laugh, but it's gross. Why do men continue to do this, especially when you are a member of Congress? If you put it on- It was gross. It was widely hailed as gross because Joe Barton is a portly man in his late 60s. That's among it. Gross is a visceral reaction and partly It's because he was involved in an abuse of power, I guess. He's a powerful person. So maybe just that fact alone shows an abuse of power. But it's also gross because, like I said, Barton's not the kind of guy you want to think about in the porn context. Blake Farenholt, another Republican of Texas, also behaved in behavior that was gross. This really was gross. He harassed female and male members of his staff. Here he was kind of apologizing for it right before resigning. And I allowed the personal stress of the job to manifest itself in angry outbursts and too often a failure to treat people with the respect that they deserved. That was wrong. Clearly, it's not how I was raised. It's not who I am. And for that situation, I am profoundly sorry. Eight months after that, Trent Franks, Republican of Arizona, stepped down. He faced charges that he had asked former staffers to serve as surrogate mothers. That was a few months before Duncan Hunter, Republican of California, was stripped of all his committee assignments. He was indicted. He goes on trial in January. And part of the investigation, by the way, revealed that he had consensual affairs with female staffers and subordinates. The sexual allegations, both confirmed and denied in all of these cases against all these men, were varied. They ranged from the victimless to the horribly improper. But in each case, except Duncan Hunter's, and that just might change with his conviction, in each case, these men, like Katie Hill, resigned from office. And now, and most of these events occurred before a rule was put on the books, the Congressional Code of Ethics, explicitly banning a relationship even a consensual affair between elected an elected official and a congressional staffer. Again, Katie Hill denies she had a relationship with the congressional staffer. But if the reason the rule is on the books regarding a con- congressional staffer, it is an acknowledgement of the power imbalance creating a difficult situation for any staffer, which would also be a difficult situation for any campaign staffer. Congress can't police the actions of someone before they get to Congress. They can't reach out and sanction actions or relationships with a campaign staffer. But the logic is the same. So with all this said, can we really consider Katie Hill to be the victim? Well, let's consider a sentiment expressed by Charlotte Clymer, the press secretary of the human rights campaign, quote, this is heartbreaking and a reminder that women in elected office are held to entirely different standards than their male colleagues. The horror of revenge porn and the cruelty of biphobia will not get nearly as much discussion as they deserve. We discussed a lot, the different standards between men and women, but what about biphobia? I considered this. It's kind of an interesting point. So bi people, if you're bi, If you're bisexual, 
You can be married and just express yourself sexually with your partner. You can be married and have relationships that your partner allows or doesn't allow, I guess, outside of the marriage. But what you can't do is be married to two people at once in America. So it does, in a way, put a bisexual person on a different playing field. I don't know, a disadvantage. If we're at a place in society where we look at people in marriages and relationships and we hold them to a different standard than people who, quote unquote, break their marriage vows or aren't in committed marriages and relationships, bisexual people are in you could say, a more difficult situation, you know, if all of America gets a vote, let's say. But this doesn't say anything about the fact that Katie Hill took up with a staffer, congressional or campaign, which gets us back to the abuse of power. Now, there's one thing that I have been sensing a lot from many of the people who are advocating for Hill, and it's that they do not believe in their hearts of hearts that there was a really bad abuse of power. Many who are coming to her defense from the queer perspective dismiss the notion of power imbalance as being a very important part of understanding Katie Hill's relationship. This is a theory, but I think that the idea of gross men having power and relying on an inherently unethical power imbalance has a lot to do with the fact that they're gross men. Maybe the problem is with the patriarchy. And because the patriarchy and the powerful overlap so often, we've been able to say powerful people shouldn't abuse their status by pursuing sexual relationships with those less powerful. But it could very well be the case that we're applying that to men abusing their power over women more than we are applying it to, say, same-sex relationships. So all I've been doing in trying to think about this and express it to you is, I think, what we should always be doing, which is trying to make the intellectually consistent case. And I think the intellectually consistent case is that, in the case of Katie Hill, like the case of many others, not of her party, not of her gender, not of her sexual orientation, that it is wrong to use power and position to pursue sexual relationships. It's where I come down. I am open to other people interpreting it in different ways, but it does seem to me to be an example of analysts once more emphasizing which codes and which ethics should be applied, not based on consistency, but based on whose camp is benefited, whose camp is set back, and who we get to call and think of as a victim. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces the gist. He predicts he will vote for a Bolshevik, but probably not a Menshevik, within the next 12, 15 years. Christina DeJosa also produces the show. She says with relative certainty, she'll not be voting for any representatives of the International Secretariat of the Fourth International. The Trotskyites, they do have some interesting ideas about UFOs, though. The gist. 80% of gist listeners identify with the Tin Man over the Cowardly Lion. And that was from a poll sponsored by Zogby and the victims of Bimetallism Memorial Foundation. Zogby, the gold standard of bimetallism polling. Umpru Depru Dupru, and thanks for listening.